When life deals you a really tough hand, filled with pain and loss, how do you come through the other side? I think grief and trauma are things that evolve with you. They've been companions, in a way. What are the tools you can draw on to make yourself stronger? I really try to choose to think of life as something that will have hardship and pain and loss, but also contains within it this kind of magic. In this episode of Brilliant Brains, with me, Tim Samuels, we explore resilience, religion and radicalism with someone who's been dealt a very public hand that beggars belief, but emerged as a best-selling author and inspiration to so many, Fatima Bhutto. Brilliant Brains is supported by Karmacist, taking well-being to the next level. Formulated by scientists at Harvard and Stanford, Karmacist supplements uniquely harness nutrigenomics research, which looks at how the nutrients we eat affect our genes. They've come up with some excellent formulations for mood, immunity, energy, and relaxation, all powered by natural botanicals like saffron, go-to-cola, California poppy, and reishi. To get your hands on these, uh, some might say, breakthrough supplements, head to karmacist.com. That's K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T dot com, where you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Back to Fatima Bhutto. Fatima's personal story is deeply entwined with Pakistan, where her family were a political dynasty for decades, at immeasurable cost. Her grandfather, who'd been president and prime minister, was executed three years before she was born. Her father then fled the country. I was born in in Afghanistan, outside my country. I was seven years old before I first set foot in Pakistan, this place that I had heard the adults in my life talk about nostalgically and, and romantically. A few years later, they returned home for good. Her father became a member of parliament. But when Fatima was 14, he was assassinated. Yes, it was outside the house. I mean, I was inside the house, so we, I heard everything. Anytime I leave my house or I enter my house, I have to cross the road where my father was killed. Her father was killed whilst her aunt was prime minister, who Fatima holds morally responsible for his death. Well, the very painful truth is that my aunt was the prime minister at the time in which my father was killed. Her aunt, Benazir Bhutto, Pakistan's only female prime minister, was herself later killed by a bomb attack. Grandfather, father, aunt and uncle too, all victims of political violence. Fatima, you've not shied away from your family story. You chronicle it beautifully and with rawness in your memoir, Songs of Blood and Sword. But you actually wrote your first book at 15. Was that just a coincidence it was within a year of your father's death or perhaps more of a reaction to it? Well, I suppose it's a bit of both. I had been writing from a very young age and it was my father who who raised me as a single parent. And, And he encouraged me to write. And I'd put together this book of poetry before he was killed, really at his urging. You know, I'd started writing poetry. I was very young at the time for a school project. And my father always kind of acted like I'd split the atom whenever I did anything. And so he said, oh, my God, you've got to keep writing. You've got to collect these. You've got to publish them. So I was already in process of putting this together before he was killed. And then after he was killed, it seemed very much as though they were those poems, you know, which are poems of a very young girl. 
were really written about all these things, trauma, about loss. And, and so when it was published, it happened to be a year later and I published it, you know, in my father's memory. So I'd, I'd like to talk to you about resilience and mental resilience, Fatima. It's very hard to separate you from the, the intricacies of, of politics in Pakistan. Resilience, at least as far as I understand it, comes from, from a couple of things. But, but one of the things that my father taught me from a very young age was a, was a wonder at the world and a joy and curiosity of all its possibilities and its beauty and its scope and really one's survivability through, through what is not beautiful. And that's what helped me in the early part after my father was killed, was remembering just what a joyous person he had been. It took a while, of course, for me to remember the joy as opposed to all the sadness. But I think that's part of it. And I think the other part is while I know life is short and I know that personally, I really try to choose to think of life as long and to think of it as something that will have hardship and pain and loss but also contains within it this kind of magic that allows you to survive those things and, and to learn through your struggles and to work constantly not to be broken by them, but, but really learn from them, to be illuminated by them in some way if we can be. It's interesting that, the, that resilience and, and psychologists seem to attest to this is, is something that you can develop you know like a muscle you can exercise that and it sounds like you're almost suggesting that you can choose where you apply your brain so rather than dwelling on perhaps the bitterness you can focus as you say on the positivity or, or, or perhaps the wonder i want to remember my family in the ways in which we were happy and things were safer and there were different possibilities for us of course, at the, at the same time, I also have to recognize that justice is a strange concept because for a long time after my father was killed, I was obsessed by this idea of justice. I wanted justice. And at some point it occurred to me that for me to have the justice I wanted, someone else's daughter would have to suffer the pain I did. Would I be right in presuming in, in the mid-90s in Pakistan, you might not have had full-on bereavement, counseling, psychotherapy, at, at, at the time to achieve that closure and heal those emotional wounds? Well, not really, actually, because I did go to therapy after my father's murder. I went to therapy for a long time. You know, I had really lovely people at school. The, the principal of my high school was there when, when we had to tell my brother, who was six years old, that our father was dead. He helped us tell him. So I was very lucky to have that kind of support. And of course, I had friends who I was able to speak to. But actually, Tim, and maybe this is kind of counterintuitive to say, but I was in therapy for a long time. And while at the time it was a kind of soothing experience, because for an hour a week, you got to talk to someone about your anxieties, I can't say that therapy helped me. What really helped me was changing my perspective was just a shift in perspective. And therapy hurt in some ways because it kept me in the place of my pain week after week after week after week, reminding me and making me relive these terrible memories. So while my, my therapist was a really extraordinary woman and I have so much affection and gratitude for her, really it was not therapy or even you know bereavement counseling that helped. It was just 
applying another way of thinking. And that, that other way of thinking was kind of like flipping a switch. I mean, it took me 15 years to get there. But after those 15 years, the switch, when it flipped, it, it flipped. It's interesting to know. I mean, I in no way to a similar level of trauma loss. My mum died when I was a kid. Zero therapy. It was in the eighties, so there was just sort of it wasn't, wasn't even a consideration. And in later years, when I've gone back and tried to address it in therapy, I do sometimes wonder: does it make any difference? So bloody painful that is you kind of operating under the assumption that you're somehow liberating yourself from from some trauma. But I I don't know. But it sounds like you got there. You got there of your own accord. Well, that's, I mean, I wouldn't say my own accord because it was, you know, a multitude of experiences and conversations, friends and people who I trusted pointing out things to me that kind of coalesced. You know, I remember being upset and saying to a friend that one of the things that hurts so much about grief when you lose someone are really the small things. So when I would see something funny and when I would watch a funny movie, it really pained me that I couldn't share it with my father. You know, obviously graduation and things like that are difficult, but there were times when I just thought, oh, he'd love this. Why can't I show it to him? And I was talking to a friend one day and he just said, well, why can't you? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I guess I could. I mean, I guess I could. And it, it sounds to people who haven't experienced loss, it might sound bizarre to think like that, but it's no more bizarre than anything else we do. It's no more bizarre than our other attachments to things or ideas. And so I just started telling my father anytime I had something to tell him. It's a really lovely and liberating way, way of doing it. Does religion much of a solace to you? you know, is it something that you have drawn on at times in your, in your life or not? At the time it wasn't. And I felt quite upset, actually, because I remember at the funeral, people saying things to me like, oh, this is God's will or your father's in heaven and, you know, things like that, that were just not helpful to me as a 14 year old, because I was so devastated and, and so wounded that it didn't. But as I've gotten older, there is, I think, some solace, if not in religion, in lessons of religions. I mean, as far as I can see, there's no religion out there that bolsters the idea of yourself. We live in a culture today which is all about the self, whether we're talking about social media or anything else. It's all about who are you, what makes you you, what's special about you. And, and it makes us build these fortresses around ourselves that we are constantly defending. And I think there's pain in that. One of the things that I think has been helpful that might come from religion or religions is this idea of surrendering the self of knowing that actually there is no self. We're all just these sort of specks of dust that are constantly evolving and adapting and changing and moving. We don't have to define anything because there's nothing to define. I hope that doesn't sound really annoying and kind of abstract. I, I think it's good to always downplay our significance. <laughs> I, think, I, I think we can we can get a bit full of ourselves. It doesn't help. Yeah. And if you, you know, you look at social media and it's all about people saying like, I am the kind of person that goes here, does that, wears this, reads that, watches that, looks like this. And you, you have to do that all the time. I mean, it's exhausting. I didn't want to live the rest of my life as Fatima, the girl who was devastated by violence, you know, Fatima, the girl who suffered trauma from birth. I wanted the space to be a hundred different things if I wanted to be them. And I think that's, for me, what, what I find valuable about lessons from, whether it's spirituality or, or religion, is letting go. And would, would you say that 
I mean, although you're someone who, as I understand it, you're more sort of secular or culturally Islamic rather than practicing believer, but would you say this is, this is the sort of side of Islam that we don't see, especially from the Western point of view? Yes, I think there's such a narrow view on Islam, especially in the West, and it's been reduced to these very strange things that no one, I mean, if you're a Muslim, you don't recognize. But to me, Islam has always been, you know, a religion fundamentally concerned with with that surrender, and also with justice. And there's a lot of beauty in that. Um, There's a lot of beauty in the in the space that allows you to think through pain and struggle and loss. And I, I actually think all religions have that. And they all have it in, in pretty much the same degree. And so Islam is not is not different in that sense. But yeah, it, it was really later in life that these things started to mean something to me and that I started to think about them more in this way. And again, from the outside, Pakistan would seem to be a fairly oppressive place to be a woman. Is that a miscaricature? No, I think it is a place where there are oppressive, brute laws concerning women. But I mean, if the last five, 10 years have shown us anything, you know, with Me Too and Time's Up, I don't think anywhere is a paradise for women. Whether you're talking about East or West, Pakistan or America, women suffer violence disproportionately at the hands of their partners. Women um, struggle to be believed in front of the law, in front of the police. You know, women are constantly put in a position of fearing for their safety. When I was in Pakistan, I feared for my safety, not as a woman, but just as a person. But, you know, when I was in college in London or or in New York, I feared for my safety as a woman, you know, walking home at night or walking somewhere alone. So I think, unfortunately, and this is a sad thing, that's universal. I guess in, in someone like Pakistan, the burqa is such a, a visible symbol of what we might think, again, is relegating women to second-class status. Is there a more nuanced reality to the burqa? Yes, I, I think so. I think, first of all, people miss the fact that a lot of women, especially in the modern age, use the veil or the burqa as a as a form of resistance. You know, whether you're talking about Algeria during the French occupation, you know, the French were obsessed with unveiling women. And they used to put these posters up of a woman, you know, with her hair open saying, you know, aren't you pretty? You know, throw off your veil, be free. And a lot of women, because they're subjects of the French, they were not treated as equals of the French, chose to veil themselves as a, as a mode of political resistance. And I think you see that, you know, after 9-11, after the war on terror. So I think there's a nuance there that, that a lot of people miss. And I think that the larger nuance is that if we really believe in feminism and the ideas of women's choice, then, you know, just as wearing a miniskirt or having your hair open is a choice for a woman, so too is covering up. And I think we miss that. At least in the West, there's always a conversation about the burqa being as forced. But there are many women who wear coverings, whether light or full, out of their own choice. I mean, I've been asked, you know, to do panels or, or conversations or talks on the burqa. And I'm always amazed to turn up to them and find actually no one with a burqa on those panels. Why aren't they being brought to the table? Why are they bringing people like me to talk about the burqa? So I think there's a, there's a lot of space for that discussion. I mean, a lot more needs to be said about it. Though I guess not many women in, in Karachi would have the choice to wear a miniskirt and, and uh, get away with it. I mean, they did before, before Zayal Haq's coup. Women wore miniskirts all the time in Pakistan, you know, in certain neighborhoods or, you know, it was more acceptable than others. 
Now, yeah, no. I mean, well, it depends. Certainly there are places you can go. People are in miniskirts, but no. I mean, it is harder, obviously. But but I think we do a disservice to, to women when we reduce freedom to the body or we reduce freedom to sexuality and both east and west do this you know on the western side they will say look you're only free if you can do these things if you are able to wear these things and do what you like then you're a liberated woman and on the other side they'll say oh well look you know we're you're you're such a valuable entity that we've got to protect you and we're asking you or telling you not to wear these things so that you'll be safer but where's the voice of the woman in that in either way, she's stuck between um, herself as a symbol, you know, a symbol of, of good or a symbol of oppression or a symbol of freedom. So I think it's reductive. There's so many trade-offs and so many nuances in this argument that I, I think it's really difficult to paint it as, as black or white. Patrick, it feels like we're in the middle of some fairly seismic social and political shifts at the moment. Radicalism clearly is, is one of them. And it's something that you've sort of beautifully captured in your more recent novel, The Runaways showing what can draw people from different backgrounds to essentially going to fight jihad, where that almost feels like a kind of rational choice to make in someone's life. Given the sort of rising levels of inequality and who knows what impact the virus is going to have, do you feel that we are still on this kind of radical trajectory? I think that radicalism has taken a kind of backseat at the moment, at least in people's imagination. For me, one of the reasons why I wrote The Runaways was because I never really agreed with the idea that radicalism is something born of religion. I think radicalism is born of anger and humiliation and isolation. And I think a lot of it has to be owed to the weaponization of a lot of those things, you know, even the weaponization of the internet. And it, this just isn't my opinion. I mean, MI5 has done studies that show that religion is not a spark to radicalism. It's actually an insulator. The more religious you are, the more insulated, the more protected you are from those radical kind of grooming impulses or suggestions. As in, if, if you're sort of authentically religious and you, you understand the texts... Yeah, I don't just mean like you just woke up one morning and decided I'm religious. But, you know, if you if you are someone who lives in a household where it's discussed, where you have access to religious texts, where you have the space to talk about it, it protects you. And, you know, even even if we want to say, OK, well, forget MI5, you know, ISIS loved doing rep- record keeping. So they kept a lot of records. And what they would do with their recruits when they came through was they would give them a kind of like quiz. You know, they'd have them fill out these forms. And by their own accounting, we know that the majority of people who joined them had a below standard understanding of religion. So I think why we saw radicalism kind of explode in this powerful and like what seemed a widespread way was because they were not making an old argument. They were making a very modern argument. They were saying to people left out of their societies, you know, young brown kids who come from migrant backgrounds who don't see a future for themselves in their country, though they may think of themselves as British or American, French or whatever. ISIS said to these people, your country doesn't respect you. Your country doesn't give you a space to have a noble future, but we will. And not only will we do that, we'll give you power. And we will allow you to be leaders of men, not just second-class citizens. You know, that's a very modern argument. That's not a backwards argument. And and I think that accounts for a lot of its popularity. But I think what we're facing today is something different. I think the radicals of today are not teenage men running away to fight in a desert. The radicals of today are in governments. These are elected people whose politics are built on, on hate, 
on exclusion, on intolerance. You see that from India, you see that to Brazil, you see that in America, you see that in UKIP. This is unfortunately the new radicalism. And they're taking advantage of this pandemic. There's a lot of ugly rhetoric that we've seen. And a lot of it is about outsiders. You know, a lot of it is about closing borders. A lot of it is about who's going to get to live and who's not going to get to live. And I think that's going to be as horrific as that period of radicalism was, if not if not worse. And, and talking of politics, given the sort of dynastic lure that almost seems to kind of go with you and, and, and your family, you must get asked a million times whether you're going to go into politics at some point. So I'll ask you instead, what would your therapist say that you should do? It's a good way of turning that question. It's always been a difficult question for me because I do feel like a very political animal. I've always been interested in politics. I'm very moved by politics. And I think politics is, is not about, it should not be about power. It should be about justice. It should be about a lot of these things that I hold very dear. At the same time, have always felt that through my books, through my novels and my writing, I was afforded a certain freedom that allowed me to pursue those ideas and to pursue them deeply and, and thoughtfully and freely. I never saw that I'd have that space in politics. But would, would your therapist say that your inner soul, your id, craves actions rather than words? I mean, at times, at times, certainly. At times, I, I think... I, I do think to myself, is my reason good enough? Is it good enough to have this lofty sort of, you know, oh no, I want to sit back and write about these things and think about them. If there's the chance you might actually be able to do something because politics is a service. In my country, I've always felt that that service would be impeded. <laughs> and so that's why I never pursued it. But, you know, at the same time, Tim, if you, if you have no self and you allow yourself to be a different person than you were 10 minutes ago or one day ago or one year ago, then it's hard to predict the future or your reasons or your inclinations. I always found myself caught between these two things. And I still find myself caught between these two forces. But the power of each changes at different times. My reasons change, my everything changes. So right now, and I've been saying right now for 20 years, but my right now has always said to me, outside is the better place to be. Uh, Fatima, I, I'd like to end on a couple of quick fire questions. Who is your brilliant brain? I guess, I mean, for me, they're kind of different. The person I most admire is my father, sustained by the love that I had from my father, even though it was just for 14 short years of my life. I feel I am the person I am at core because of him. But I have many other brains. I have a brain for, you know, one thing and a brain for another thing. My brother, my younger brother, is a brain for me about certain issues. Our friends are brains for other issues. I've got other brains for work and writing. It's greedy, I know, to answer a quick fire question this way. But I think I'm lucky to have different brains. Like a brain collective. We'll, we'll let that through. Yes. <laughs> And if you were made dictator overnight with a, a mission to improve people's base level of happiness and meaning, what would you enact? Gosh, dictator for a night. Is this like globally? Well, I mean, you, you've lived all over the place. So I feel, I feel like you, you could answer for any, any one of, I mean, we'll give you global because I think you amongst most people have, have generally lived globally. <laughs> you can have Britain, Pakistan, America, Syria, Afghanistan, wherever you fancy, Fatima. 
I think one of the things I would want to do immediately if I had dictatorial powers for the night would be to abolish the death penalty. I think that's one that works globally. Removing the idea that power has the right of violence over its people is something I would want to remove. Yeah, as someone who's spent quite a lot of reporting time myself on death row in the States, I completely agree with that. I will now set about trying to get you into a dictatorial position. <laughs> let's see what we can do. Fast Mabuto, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, people immediately, people immediately need to go and buy all your books. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks to Fatima Buto. To hear all twelve episodes of Brilliant Brains, including gardener Monty Don beautifully capture our relationship with nature and his candid battles with depression go to the podcast page on karmacist.com, the show's sponsors. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. Brilliant Brains.